We changed the future of healthcare for our state. We created generational change in people's lives, giving hundreds of thousands of people access to things that change their lives. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. I'm Dan Diamond. On tap today, Dr. Rebecca Gee. She was the health secretary of Louisiana before stepping down last month. Dr. Rebecca Gee guided the Department of Health through its most significant period of growth and change as nearly 500,000 Louisianans enrolled in health insurance. And she doesn't fit into easy boxes. Dr. Gee is someone who grew up and studied it in the North before becoming a prominent health leader in the South. She was pro-abortion rights in a state where her own boss, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards, is vocally anti-abortion. And she's a person who knows the other side of tragedy and being a patient. Her first husband was killed, and she was partially paralyzed after being struck by an SUV. As Louisiana Health Secretary, Dr. Gee oversaw a bunch of major initiatives, Medicaid expansion to hundreds of thousands of people, a dramatic new drug pricing deal that other states say they want to copy. We got into those policies and others in our conversation, which you'll hear in a second. As a leader, as a policymaker, hope is a prerequisite. And after my interview with Dr. Gee, you'll also hear from my colleague Alice Miranda Olstein, who's been tracking a major abortion court case that had Dr. Gee's name on it until last week. And Alice will also discuss abortion's role at the Supreme Court and ahead of the 2020 election. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Gee. Thank you for having me. I first interviewed you on stage back in November 2019. We talked about your goals as Louisiana Health Secretary. Your boss, Governor John Bell Edwards, had just won re-election as governor. You invited me down to Louisiana to watch your team in action. Shortly afterward, you resigned. Was it something I said? It was definitely you, Dan. <laughs> it's definitely you. If, if you could take us back to that moment, though, what, what, what were you thinking when deciding to leave the office after four years? Was there something that drove you to step down back in January? Yeah, so my big focus was on getting John Bell Edwards reelected. He is a Democrat in the Deep South. His first executive order was to expand Medicaid. He's somebody who's extremely dedicated to issues that I care about and certainly had supported my policy changes, everything from our maternal mortality work to the Medicaid expansion. And my focus for six months had really been on helping him get reelected, making sure that we were able to have a legacy that lasted beyond the four years. And so after we won and I had a few weeks to think about it, I realized that the drive from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, which was about 180 miles round trip, and was wearing on me, as well as the fact that we really accomplished all of the big bets that I had sent out to achieve and really wanted to leave on a high note, which we did. When I met with the governor last week, he gave me his executive order 16-01, which was our first act and the executive order to expand Medicaid. So I leave with a lot of gratitude to him for giving me the opportunity of a lifetime to help him lead the state and run half the state budget, which was an interesting, I was an interesting choice for him. And I also, we reflected on that. I was someone who had come to Louisiana when he chose me six years prior with no Louisiana connections. I came because I fell in love with my husband, David, and within six years, I was running half the state budget. So when I reminded him of that, I think he wondered, well, why the hell did this lady come and, and help me run the state? But we did a lot of great things, and there's so much to be proud of, but you need to also know when it's time to leave, and it was time to leave. When we had our, our exit meeting, I said, why did you, you know, what, what went into you choosing me? And he really wanted a physician in the job. 
And one of the things I brought that I think is lacking sometimes in these policy roles, because people become bean counters so often, is that I am a doctor. And I looked at every number as a person. And that's what the governor wanted. And there were so many things in my job that I said no to. Now, we say in policy roles, there are a thousand things you say yes to and a thousand things you say no to. But the things you say no to are as important sometimes as the things you say yes to. So what's what's something you said no to? You know, denying women who had breast cancer, when, when women needed breast reconstruction, we wouldn't pay for the other breasts to be reconstructed so that women had a reasonable quality of life. I said no to that policy. You know, people would bring cuts to me. A, a great example was one of the cuts recommended during my tenure was let's cut all of the public health units in the state. These are the units that if there is ever a coronavirus you know, outbreak in the U.S., we'll respond to it, have responded to all kinds of public health challenges. That cut would have saved us less than a million dollars. And I said no to that. But someone who's not thinking about the patients being seen in the clinics and the clinical ramifications of decisions might have said, OK, let's just do it. So those policies that you just described in, in terms of making investments that cost money but ultimately made people's lives better, I, I take your point that if you're a bean counter, you – look for the savings, but it also seems like the kind of thing that it's very easy to say no to. Was there something that you said no to and really lost a lot of sleep over the lives that might have been affected by it? No, I mean, I the th- I said no to a lot of things where I got flack on it. So a great example was the proton beam. We were going to have a proton beam arms race in Louisiana, which would have cost the state each proton beam center was going to be about $150 million. And I should say for listeners who don't know proton beam, this is not like a Superman or Star Trek uh, technology. These are these high-end imaging centers, I- imaging equipment. And it's unclear whether after spending all of this money, what it's actually benefiting beyond just being able to say we have this cutting-edge therapy. Right. They're fancy-pants Star Wars imaging. And they, they treat cancer, and they o- but they're only real – utility is for childhood brain cancers and cancers of the eye. So we already had one in Louisiana, but these were going to be thirty to forty thousand dollars a procedure or a you know, and and so I just said no. I fought it publicly. You know, the the challenge is whenever there's money to be made and you say no to it, people attack you. So I we won that. There are no more proton beams in Louisiana. I'm very proud of that, winning that fight. But we also said no to freestanding emergency rooms. There were going to be you – know, my favorite was within a mile of our downtown academic medical center trauma center that has one of the best ERs in the country. They were going to build a freestanding ER. And we fought that. But there, I call it the whack-a-mole principle. You've got – you know, bad ideas that pop up all the time, and you, you you deal with one of them, and then another one pops up, and you deal, and you become the enemy of people then who want to make money off whatever it is you're saying no to. You mentioned Medicaid expansion, the key initiative that you oversaw from day one under Governor Edwards. There are now four hundred thousand plus Louisianans who are who are covered by the program. Many of them got covered almost right away. What is more accurate that this was a success story? finally expanding Medicaid in a southern state that had resisted it, or that it's a calamity, that it took so long, and so many of your fellow residents in Louisiana didn't have coverage for years. You know, one of the one of the really sad things that happened during the four years was we were having our year anniversary session to celebrate the Medicaid expansion at University Medical Center in New Orleans. And at that session, several patients came in who had been able to get health care because of the expansion. One of them who showed up had had a brain tumor. And unfortunately, because Jindal had denied the expansion, 
we had put it into place, she had governor, had governor Bobby Jindal, the predecessor the, to Governor Edwards, correct. the Republican predecessor. That's right. So during his tenure, she had developed this brain tumor. It didn't get diagnosed until too late. She actually had a seizure during our press conference. So it was a it was a, a really painful visual of what happens when you deny people health care. And certainly there were many lives saved. I met hundreds of people whose lives were saved. But there were many people for whom it was too late, simply lost their lives. Their breast cancer was diagnosed too late. They had a stroke because of untreated blood pressure. There were women who had severe diabetes who, after pregnancy, lost health care coverage and had infants with, with, unfortunately, malformations because of the diabetes, had terrible outcomes. We had we have sequelae of that. There are there are these are not just numbers. There are real consequences to these policy decisions. And as a practicing physician, I saw them as well. So some of the battles that you had in Louisiana against the industry, certainly against Republicans over the ideas that Governor Edwards, a Democrat, was pushing. One of the challenges that cuts across politics, maternal mortality. Right. You're an obstetrician, gynecologist. The maternal mortality death rate around the globe, about seven deaths per 100,000 live births in the United Kingdom, uh, eight deaths per 100,000 in, in Canada, 45 deaths in Louisiana. And yes. it's even worse for black mothers. Why is Louisiana such an outlier? So a couple things. One is, and, and I take responsibility for this, under uh, Governor Bobby Jindal, I had led the initiative to improve birth outcomes. And at that time, we didn't know how bad the numbers were. We focused on infant mortality. We were able to reduce that by 25%. We were able to virtually eliminate elective deliveries before 39 weeks, which is when deliveries are recommended. And we were able to reduce NICU admissions by 10%. But we didn't have a maternal mortality review committee that was robust at that time. And so the data weren't available to tell us how bad the problem was. And so when I came in as secretary, we established that. And we started looking at that data. So part of it is that we started looking at the data. So we were measuring it better. And because we were measuring it better, our numbers went up. But I would argue, as we talked about earlier, that lack of health care for generations for women who are low income, and Louisiana is one of the three states in our nation where 40 percent or more of our people live below 200 percent of poverty. We have disproportionate numbers of low income women who had, when they could get care, were able to get care only during pregnancy. And so the ramifications of that, of that were that women would have a delivery, have illnesses, and have no ability to get them treated between the next pregnancy. So all of that was occurring. But also we have a violence problem in Louisiana. We recently published some work that the leading reason for maternal death in Louisiana is homicide, which is totally unacceptable. So, so, so just to underline this point, abusive partners correct. Were, were killing pregnant women at an extraordinarily right. high rate. The leading cause of death. That's right. And then the second is our hospital quality just wasn't where it needed to be. And so we, we uh, very much like other parts of the country, women were delivering and they were having blood loss and it was not being measured. And so providers would realize too late that a woman was hemorrhaging. So the two preventable causes are hemorrhage or heavy bleeding and high blood pressure. And we knew that we weren't addressing those issues properly. And so we established the Perinatal Quality Collaborative with a focus on racial equity as well, because we looked at our data and it really is specific to black women. The issue that black women, um, 59% of their deaths were preventable 
versus only 9% of white women's deaths. So we, we focused at the outset on the issues of unequal care and racial equity in our hospitals. We did equity trainings. We focused on measures that looked at equity and looked at disparities at the very outset. These were conversations that were really challenging to have with hospitals who said, look, we're going to talk about race later. Let's just address the quality now. And we said, no, equity is really part and parcel of this problem. In a state where we had a charity system where, where care was segregated. And one of the saddest things I heard was in North Louisiana, and I asked uh, a hospital why they didn't see Medicaid. And they said, we got rid of our Medicaid day because we didn't like the way our waiting room looked in it with the women there with their children and their McDonald's dipping sauces. And that was said to me just a couple of years ago. So you think about those attitudes towards patients and women uh, throughout many parts of Louisiana weren't welcomed to medical care, didn't feel that listened by their providers. So I think we've really addressed a lot of it. And just to say, I think we've reduced hemorrhage by 32% in two years. So our efforts are paying off and we're really proud of those. Some of what you've discussed about attitudes and, and structural problems in the Louisiana healthcare system, how much can one person or one administration over four years really do to move a state toward better health? We did a lot. 500,000 people got health care. The majority of those were women of reproductive age, the same population we're talking about. We established an office of community partnerships and health equity. We trained all of our senior staff on these issues and helped change mentality about how we plan the work that we do and how we do that with communities. We have addressed equity in our cancer outcomes and focused on cancer screenings. 80,000 mammograms, 45,000 colonoscopies. So, so yes, so with, you can do a lot. With respect for your, your broad agenda, which which yeah. you've talked about here and elsewhere, Louisiana, when you came in, near the bottom of, of nearly every health metric that the United States has, still remains near the bottom of all these important health metrics. How much can be done in a state like Louisiana, where there are cultural attitudes about eating and, and living, which might be great for party nightlife in New Orleans, but maybe not so great if you're a heart surgeon looking for better outcomes. So we didn't address obesity. Uh, and the, the one time I commented on the drive through daiquiri stands, I got in, in big trouble politically because those are uh, those are part of the holy trinity of Louisiana culture. What, what did you so, say about drive through daiquiris? I said that it probably wasn't a good idea that people could drink hard liquor through a straw while they're driving. That was highly controversial. Did, and, did, the, did the daiquiri <laughs> lobby go after you? Well, there that? was a there was a full page story in the Times Picayune that week about the history of the daiquiri stand and how I was a native of Utah and how dare I. So I decided to stay away from that for the rest of the. Um, that was at my first hearing. Um, but you know, Louisiana culture is incredible. I, you know, it's in it's endearing, it's enduring, it's part of why people support each other and why the public was approving of the Medicaid expansion. We have a Cajun Navy. We take care of each other. And I think that that distinguishes us from other conservative states. That being said, we focused on not the culture. We focused on things that we can change. We move the needle on HIV, the lowest rates of HIV new cases since the epidemic began. Hep C, the first in the nation elimination model, we've already treated 10 times the number of people we treated this year in just part of half a year 
than we did the first year I was secretary. We lowered syphilis rates. We lowered chlamydia rates. We are eighth in the nation on primary care utilization. So we focused on the things that we can change. And we also focused on racial equity. And once you give people power, it's really hard to take it away. And once you educate people and once they're aware of their own attitudes and how those attitudes impact their decision-making, it's hard to change them back to where they were before. So I know that everything we did won't last forever, but I know that we changed Louisiana for the better. You mentioned Hep C, where you led negotiations with pharmaceutical company Gilead and its subsidiary, pay a flat fee for these Hep C drugs. It has now emerged as a model that other states might follow. And it's gotten a lot of attention. A New York Times op-ed writer named you, doctor, one of five people who spread hope in 2019. Quote, Dr. Rebecca Gee makes medicines affordable. Do you think of yourself as hopeful? Absolutely. Yeah. I think as a, as a leader, as a policymaker, hope is a prerequisite. If you're not hopeful about the future and you're leading a health department or a state or an agency, then you should probably have a different job. I know a little about your path and some of the tragedies you've experienced, and you're still hopeful about where life will take you. Yeah, I'm lucky to be alive, Dan. You know my story, and every day I wake up and realize that that day is a gift, and it's it, it's what we say in Louisiana, lanyap, that means a little extra from what I should have had when I lost my first husband in 2008. So. I feel lucky and, and I feel fortunate to have been given at least the past four years and in my future role as well, the opportunity to help others. I think it's great to show up for a job where you can do work that matters and where people benefit from it. So I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. I think that this country is is in a challenging time right now, and there's a lot of angry people on both sides in so my role was to try to focus on where we could find common ground. The Trump administration is moving to impose new curbs on Medicaid, like CMS chief Seema Verma's recent block grant proposal, where states could cap Medicaid funding. How would that affect Louisiana? Well, what, that would be very bad for Louisiana because our current system is working well. That might work for another state who, particularly a state where there's politics that, that are not favorable to a Medicaid expansion. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a blanket statement about the proposal, but for Louisiana, it would not be good. Looking ahead, in about three weeks, the Supreme Court will hear a major abortion rights case that has had your name on it for years, June Medical Services versus Gee. Now, I, I know Louisiana moved last week to take your name off the case and replace it with your successor, but it, it's a challenge to a 2014 law that would require doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. A district court found that the law would essentially leave just one physician providing abortions in the entire state of Louisiana. This was an anti-abortion law, still is. You're the defendant, or you were, even though you are on the record as pro-abortion rights. How did it feel to have your name on that case? I'm very glad my name's off the case. Yeah. And I've always been pro-choice. My opinion has never changed. And to the governor's credit, he chose me for the role, despite intense opposition from those who were intolerant of differing views. And he and, and during my four years tenure, I never said anything or did anything that violated my ethical compass. That being said... 
I'm very glad to have my name off this case. And Governor Edwards feels differently about abortion than you do. He's anti-abortion. That's right. He he is. Um, and, and I was criticized often by individuals on the left, also individuals on the right. Individual Individuals on the left would say, how can you possibly work for somebody who's not for abortion rights? And what I would say to them is, look, 500,000 people have health care. Governor Edwards has fought for equal pay. Governor Edwards has fought for criminal and achieved criminal justice reform. He's fought for minimum wage. We have to be, I, in my view, moving towards a society where we don't have a litmus test and we completely negate every other beneficial thing that someone could do because of one opinion. And so for me, working for him was a privilege. He tolerated my view. I, I came in in full disclosure of my views to him, I had sued Walmart because of not providing Plan B in the stores and had written an article in the New England Journal about my journey and why I did that. I shared it with him when I interviewed for the job and said, look, Governor, if you don't feel comfortable, this is who I am. And to his credit, he shook my hand and said, welcome to the team. And your argument is that Democrats need more governors like John Bell Edwards, who might not be in lockstep with the party on everything, certainly on abortion, a major issue, but in a state like Louisiana, it's necessary to have a different kind of Democrat who can win office and then expand Medicaid. Look at what how many lives we've saved through his policies, policies that would have never been achieved if a Republican were governor. So I would say that tolerance is needed and the Democrats need to welcome a, a wide variety of individuals into the party that have differing views. And I think that Americans are looking towards the center you know, certainly, um, you know, we, we're having a, a political process now, but but I think that people like to see differing views. And certainly in Louisiana, he is the kind of Democrat who can win an election and is the only Deep South Democrat to have won a, a gubernatorial election. So uh, it's been it's I think that the proof is in the pudding. Is there something you would do differently based on your experience in Louisiana where Republicans beat you up for not being in Baton Rouge or, or your previous abortion record. Is there something you learned from that experience? So I'm the mother of five children. I have three stepchildren and I have young twins who are seven. I wouldn't have changed living in New Orleans and being their mother and being with them for the world. But there was a double standard. There was one hearing I missed, one, three and a half years ago. It was a hearing I missed because I had a trip scheduled with my kids that I told the governor about. And I heard about that one missed hearing for three and a half years. The male chairman of that same committee missed 12 hearings. And one day he was gone for his kid's soccer game and people were like, oh, isn't that great? He's such a good dad. So I do feel like as a female, I have an opportunity to create a new type of leadership dynamic where I can show that I can be a mom and have a job like that. It was important to me that I didn't give up my opportunity to be a mother, not, not to miss every single event my kids had. And so I made those choices. And I wouldn't, I'm glad that I made those choices. And I hope that when my girls get to have a job like that, they don't get those same kinds of double standards. And the only way to change it is to do it and to demonstrate it can be done. You know, there was such animosity towards me that there was a bill at one point. I did free medical care once every two months where I volunteered and saw patients. They tried to pass a bill preventing me from doing that. I felt that that was part of my job because when I saw patients, I understood what the health plans were doing, what my patients were experiencing. It reminded me why I'm in the job I'm in, who I'm fighting for. 
So it, it, it failed. But, you know, I think it's important. I, I don't regret those choices. I, I don't um, have any regrets either about what we accomplished. There was every, everything that I could do, I did do. And there were some things that were just politically impossible. And those are for the next secretary. Why would you ever want to go back into a world where your attendance at meetings, your, your participation in free medical care, it is scrutinized that closely? Why is that appealing? Yeah, because, because we move mountains. I mean, these jobs come with tremendous, I mean, tremendous scrutiny, tremendous criticism. It's so easy to criticize someone who's getting the job done, who's doing work every day. But you also have the ability, we had a $15 billion budget, and we changed the future of healthcare for our state. We created generational change in people's lives, giving hundreds of thousands of people access to things that change their lives. So, you know, the, you've got to have thick skin and realize that most of it isn't personal. Some of it, I'm sure, is. But these aren't the people who are coming to your Thanksgiving dinner. So who cares? We will let you get out of this conversation and back to your family in Louisiana. But thanks for making the choice to sit down with us, Dr. Rebecca Gee. Thank you so much, Dan. Now joining me, Alice Miranda Olstein, our ace reporter on the courts and abortion. Alice, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We just heard from Dr. Rebecca Gee talking about her legacy in Louisiana, and one part of that legacy that she's very happy to have her name off of, the court case formerly known as June Medical versus Gee. You've been following this case through the legal travails. What is this case, and, and where does it currently stand? So the Supreme Court is set to hear this case in just a couple weeks, and it's going to be one of the most highly watched, closely watched of the whole season coming up on the election, because this is a case that people on both sides either hope or fear the justices could use to revisit Roe versus Wade or or uh, Casey or one of the other uh, precedents that govern abortion laws around the country. So on the surface, this is sort of an open and shut case. It's a law from Louisiana that would require abortion clinics to obtain admitting privileges at local hospitals. The same exact law was struck down by the Supreme Court when it came out of Texas just a few years ago, but— That was whole women versus Hellerstead? Right. And even though this is an identical law, the fact that it's made its way all the way back up to the Supreme Court and the fact that the Supreme Court also asked to hear arguments from the state of Louisiana that abortion clinics should not be able to bring these kinds of cases challenging these laws at all— Louisiana argues they shouldn't have standing in cases like this because they don't truly represent the best interests of their patients. Now, if the Supreme Court was sympathetic to that line of argument, that would remake abortion litigation across the country because almost every challenge to an abortion restriction comes from a clinic uh, or a network of clinics because an individual pregnant woman doesn't have the resources and can't wait years for a decision and can't be the, f- the face of the lawsuit herself. So, so to pull out that point and underline it, this court case is significant because it could reshape how abortion litigation moves through the legal system, depending on what the Supreme Court chooses to do. Absolutely. And even if they don't go for the third party standing piece of it, if they go for the admitting privileges piece of it, not only will you see copycat laws across the country imposing that restriction on clinics, 
but you will also see them sort of testing the limits of what the Supreme Court will accept under Roe versus Wade in terms of what kinds of regulations can limit access to abortion without stepping over the line of being an undue burden on women, which is really an open legal question. Should women who want to have access to abortion, should they be worried about the fate of this case? People on both sides are uh, watching this case very closely. People who support abortion rights are are indeed very worried and are pointing to this as a reason to turn people out to vote in November with an eye on maybe another Supreme Court seat being open and a president being able to appoint someone. Abortion has been a through line of this administration, specifically anti-abortion moves. President Trump has empowered the health department. You've done a lot of reporting on this. Empowered the health department to crack down on funding for abortion services. Anti-abortion legal scholars have been appointed to judgeships. Is there going to be anything else on the horizon before the 2020 election outside of the Supreme Court case that could really fire up debates over abortion in the states? So I think it's really interesting where we've sort of come from even a year ago. A year ago, the big thing in the news was New York's law expanding abortion rights, Virginia's governor's comments on their attempts to expand abortion rights that um, now that they have a Democratic majority, they're moving towards. And that was really firing people up on the right who were saying, you know, this is allowing late term abortions. But but at the time, it was it was a firestorm. Governor exactly. Northam in Virginia was on a radio show where some said he appeared to be condoning the idea of, of potential infanticide. Democrats have said, no, his comments were taken totally out of context. Democrats aren't supporting infanticide. They just want to make sure that of women who have medical issues and need an abortion later in pregnancy, that that option is preserved. Right. And it's not like that has faded either. Just today, uh, Senator Ted Cruz was citing that same comment from today, a year today, ago Tuesday. at a hearing. Yeah. Yes, uh, at a at a Senate hearing. So that has not gone away. However, I think you've seen the sweeping abor- almost total abortion bans passed by Texas, Georgia, Ohio, Missouri, lots of states over the past year have really fired up people on the left saying, you know, we need to turn out and vote because this is a coordinated effort to um, restrict or completely abolish uh, the right to seek an abortion. And so I think going into this election, it's going to be um, a very big deal. Like I said, potential Supreme Court seats opening in the next few years, a lot of very elderly members. So um, I think the the um, June medical case out of Louisiana will be a real indication. And we haven't seen a lot of indication so far. The Supreme Court keeps things very close to the vest. This will really be an indication, one we haven't really gotten a clear picture of so far, of how far the justices are willing to go down the road of potentially revisiting Roe versus Wade. That was Alice Miranda Olstein, and Politico readers can find her coverage of the upcoming Supreme Court case, as well as abortion's role in the 2020 election on Politico.com. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. That's it for Pulse Check this week. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Just a reminder that you can check the show notes for links to articles and other things that we discuss. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for Politico Pulse Check. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode very soon.